So while you're turning over to the book of 2 Peter, I'll give you another couple of minutes to work on that because I know it's not you know, as well known as Romans, so you know, it might take a while to find it, but it's toward the back end of the New Testament, right before 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, which is right before Jude and Revelation. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'll explain to you about the, uh, the sermon title this morning, Peter's Parting Prophecies. I, you know, I, I knew that, obviously, 2 Peter 3 was written by Peter, so that was a good start. And I knew that, I knew that this was the last thing he wrote... So, you know, the whole book of 2 Peter is the last thing Peter wrote. And the third chapter is the last chapter of the book. So it's his last thing that he wrote. So it's his parting, something rather, Peter's parting. And uh, I didn't really know what to do for that third P. You know, I want to make it sound like Peter Piper picked a pack of pickled peppers. Uh, and I, I tried, you know, I, it was Peter's parting thoughts. But, you know, I wanted to, so Peter's parting ponderings or... My wife came in, she's a preacher too, and she knows how to do these things. So, you know, she said, well, you're really, you're zeroing in, aren't you, on the practical part about it, where, you know, he kind of prods them to, to live better. And I said, yeah, I guess I am. I, I wasn't really thinking about that as much until she told me that I should. And so she said, why don't you call it Peter's parting prods or, or Peter's parting practical prods? Or something like that. And I said, well, but that's not really the part I'm zeroing in on. Actually, I'm zeroing in on the prophecies. And I said, aha, that's it. It's Peter's parting prophecies. And so that's what I told Drusy when she called me on the phone and asked me what to put in the bulletin for today. Now that you know all that, don't worry about it. And let's just take a look at what Peter has to say to us in Second Peter chapter 3. As he's wrapping up this letter, Peter says, My dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written you. See, that's why it's called Second Peter. In both letters, I have tried to arouse pure thoughts in your minds. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? There's somebody out there who's always trying to arouse thoughts in our minds that aren't pure. So Peter's trying to do something different. I'm trying to arouse pure thoughts. In your minds by reminding you of these things. Well, we haven't got time to look at all the things that he's referring to that he used to try to arouse the pure thoughts. But if you've got a pencil, just write down some of these verses. You can look them up later. Here's where some of those pure thoughts arousing things are located. And that's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 16. Chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. Now you see why we didn't have time to look at them all, because that's only 1 Peter chapter 1. And there's more in 1 Peter chapter 2, and 1 Peter chapter 3, and 4, and 5, and 2 Peter chapter 1, and 2 Peter chapter 2. So just read the whole two books when you got a minute, or 20 minutes. It doesn't take much longer than that to read those two books. I want you, he says, I want you to remember... The words that were spoken long ago by the holy prophets. He references words spoken by the holy prophets long ago in 1 Peter 4, 7. That's another thing you need to look up. I want you to remember the words that were spoken by the holy prophets. And I want you to remember the command from the Lord and Savior, which was given you by your apostles. He references that command in 1 Peter 3, 8. And uh, there's also a reference 
to Philippians 2, 2. So there's a command from the Lord and Savior, Jesus, that was given to you by the apostles like Paul. In 1 Peter 3.8, he talks about the command given by Jesus. And in Philippians 2.2, Paul talks about that same command. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, some people will appear whose lives are controlled by their own lusts. Now, could I submit to you that that statement might be a sign that we're now living in the last days? Have any people appeared in, let's say, modern times whose lives are controlled by their own lusts? Certainly. And we can read about them in the news as well as meeting them on the street. Or maybe... That's been our own experience at a point in time in our life when our lives were just controlled, run, dominated by our own desires. In other words, we did whatever we wanted to do. And that's what a lot of people do nowadays, whatever they want to do, whether it's right or not. In the last days, which I believe we are living in, but... Let me also say that, say this about that. I believe we not only are living in the last days now, we, the 125 of us or so that are gathered in this room, I, I told you my glasses make it so that I see double. Not only do, are we living in the last days now in AD 2008, but I think that the last days have been going on ever since Peter wrote these words back in A.D. 66. That whole time period ever since then has been the last days. And some people will appear during those last days, some people will appear whose lives are controlled by their own lusts, and they will make fun of you as Christians and will ask many questions, but among others this. He, referring to Jesus, he promised to come, didn't he? Well, where is he? Now, Advent Christians in particular have been made fun of in these last days, for the last 150 years or so of these last days, for expecting that Jesus is going to come at any moment. And when the message gets out that that's what uh, we believe in, and by the way, how does that message get out? It gets out when we get it out. There's very few people out there looking up Advent Christian in the encyclopedia, or nowadays it's the Wikipedia on the internet. Very few people say, I wonder what Advent Christian is. I'm going to go look it up. Not very many people are doing that. For people to find out what Advent Christian is, basically Advent Christians have to go out and tell them. And usually we get opportunities to do that when people ask us, what church do you go to? Well, I go to Doolin's Grove Advent Christian Church. What's Advent Christian? That's when our opportunity arises. Hopefully, not just to talk about the church, 
but to talk about the reason for the church's existence as a unique church, which is our emphasis on the fact that Jesus is coming again. You tell people the word Advent is is an old Latin word that means coming, and it has to do with the second coming of Christ, and we're Christians over there in Doolin's Grove, most of us are, we're Christians who believe in the second coming of Christ. And so people might say, well, yeah, but, you know, Baptists believe that too. And we say, yes, that's true. But we're Advent Christians because we put a special emphasis on the second coming of Christ in our preaching, in our teaching, in our thinking, in our daily living. We focus on the second coming of Christ as a centerpiece of our worldview. And that's why we call ourselves Advent Christians. Now, usually we don't do such a good job as I just explained. And, and I'm, I'm like that myself. I'm, I work at the Exxon uh, on the run convenience store at the corner of Pitt School Road and U.S. Highway 29, the little commercial there, uh, from 4.45 until 9 o'clock in the morning. And so that's probably before most of you are out of bed. I'm down there making coffee, and uh, we had a new assistant manager hired, and uh, the manager called me over to introduce me and said, I, I know you're a preacher or something like that. What, what kind of church is it that you go to? And I said, Advent Christian. And uh, the new assistant manager said, um, well, you look like a Baptist. And <laughs> I have no idea what it is about me. I wasn't wearing my suit and tie. I was dressed in my on-the-run uniform, you know, bright yellow shirt with a tie, little things that squigglies on it that say on-the-run, and wearing a, a bib overall because the brewmaster is supposed to do that. That's the guy who makes the coffee. And she said, you look like a Baptist. And, and so rather than, rather than do what I just told you we were supposed to do, I said, oh, yeah, we're a lot like Baptist, except their churches are usually much bigger than ours, and ours are much smaller than theirs. And missed my chance to get made fun of, you know, to, to tell people what an Advent Christian is and why I am one, and then have people make fun of me by saying, well, he promised to come, didn't he? Where is he? How come he hasn't come yet? You've been preaching it for 150 years. Sometimes I feel like I've been preaching it for 150 years, but it's only 30, actually. <laughs> Where is he? They go on to say this. Our fathers, our ancestors, have already died but everything is still the same as it was since the creation of the world. Now, this is a very specific prophecy about a certain part of the end times. A part of the end times in which a worldview or a philosophy is going to be prevalent that says things just go along according to the normal track and predictability of nature, and God never intervenes in history to do anything and there are no such things as miracles and this worldview it has a very long name you ready for it uniformitarianism but you can break that down and notice the word uniform which means everything is the same right uniformitarianism is the belief that everything just goes on like it always has God never 
does anything spectacular to make anything change. And uniformitarianism is the basis behind the scientific theory of evolution. And evolution is based on the idea that things just go on and on and on for millions and millions of years and nothing ever changes. And so Peter actually predicted, actually prophesied, this is one of the first of his prophecies in this section of his parting prophecies, Peter prophesied that at, at a point in time near the end, there would be uniformitarianists who would make fun of Advent Christians because Advent Christians believe that God does from time to time miraculously intervene in history and do something spectacular and unpredictable and that's what the second coming is an example of. It's, we don't just evolve up to the second coming. You know, It's never going to get there that way. Second coming is only going to happen when God intervenes suddenly and miraculously and unpredictably. Where is he? He promised to come, didn't he? Where is he? Our fathers have already died, but everything is still the same as it was since the creation of the world. They, these uniformitarians, purposely ignore the fact. See, they have a theory, but we have a fact. They purposely ignore the fact that long ago, God gave a command and the heavens and earth were created. You can see that in the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, and there it was. God gave a command and it happened. The earth was formed out of water. See, the scientific theory doesn't agree with that. According to the scientific theory, the earth was formed out of hydrogen gas. But the Bible says the earth was formed out of water and by water. And it was also by water... The water of the flood, skipping ahead 1,656 years in history from when he started the sentence. It was also by the water of the flood that the old world was destroyed. Now, that doesn't mean the planet ceased to exist. We're still living on the same planet that people lived on before the flood. But the surface of the planet was completely destroyed by the waters of the flood and after the floodwaters went down, a completely new planetary surface emerged, and that's what we're living on, and that's what's called the world that now is. And Peter is introducing us to a biblical concept of three worlds, and all of them are planet Earth. But there is the world that was, and that's the world that God created in the beginning and existed up until the flood, and then there's the world that is, which God created out of what was left of the planet after the flood. And then there's the world that is to come. And that's what Peter wants us to focus our attention on, three worlds. Long ago, God gave a command. The heaven and the earth were created. The earth, the first one, was formed out of water and by water. It was also by water, the water of the flood, that the old world was destroyed. Come, Gone. 1,656 years. But the heavens and the earth that now exist, that's the world that is, are being preserved by the same command of God. What keeps the world together? I asked that question in a science class when I was in college, and this was before I was a Christian. I wanted to know if our whole universe is composed of little tiny atoms in which there are nuclei and shells of electrons 
And the protons in the nucleus all have a positive charge, and the electrons out in the shell all have a negative charge, and that's why they orbit around the nucleus. And the other thing in the nucleus is called neutrons, and they don't have a charge. That's why they're called neutrons, because they're neutral. If all those positive charged protons are bunched up all together in the nucleus, since like charges repel each other, why don't those nuclei just fly apart? Why don't the protons just repel each other and fly apart? You don't think about things like that, do you? Why doesn't the universe just disappear? Why doesn't it just destroy itself? Because it should. All these protons bunched up together in the nuclei of the atoms, they shouldn't be like that. That nothing, They shouldn't stick together. So I asked a chemistry professor, why do they stick together? And the chemistry professor said, quote, we don't know. But since they do stick together, we assume that there is something holding them together, and tentatively, we are calling it nuclear glue. <laughs> Unquote. This was in 1968, and many years later, scientists announced the discovery of particles they claimed were holding the nuclei of atoms together, and they were called gluons. I am not kidding you. You can read about this stuff on the Internet. The Bible says that the heavens and the earth that now exist are being preserved by the command of God. That's what holds them together. God says that they're going to be held together, and that's what holds them together. And he doesn't really have to do anything to make them fly apart. All he has to do is stop saying, hold together, and they'll fly apart all on their own. The heavens and earth that now exist are being preserved by the same command of God in order to be destroyed. They're being preserved for the purpose that someday they'll be destroyed. He says, by fire. So we have a world that was created by water and out of water, and 1,656 years later, it was destroyed by a flood of water. We have another world that was created out of the remains of that flood. It's been around for 4,466 years now, and it's being preserved with the goal to be destroyed by fire. They are being kept, the heavens and earth that now exist are being kept for the day when godless people will be judged and destroyed. He just tosses that off like everybody knows there's a day coming when godless people will be judged and destroyed. Right? We know that. And then the, I put parentheses around this in my Bible. There's no punctuation in the original, so you can put punctuation wherever you think it's a good idea. And I, I put punctuation around these two verses. But do not forget one thing, my dear friends. So please remember this. There is no difference in the Lord's sight between one day and a thousand years. To him, the two are the same. This is a modern translation, and it doesn't carry the total force of the original, which says, with the Lord, a thousand years are as a single day, and a single day is as a thousand years. Now, prophetic expositors like myself, we love to do great tricks with numbers, and so I've actually seen this calculation performed. You know, Revelation chapter 20 says that when Jesus comes, he's going to set up a kingdom that'll last a thousand years. How to interpret that, nobody seems to be real sure. 
I have seen at least 20 different serious attempts to interpret the millennium, the thousand years. And here's one of them. A thousand years. Now, that would be actually 365,000 days. Is that right? 365 days to a year? All right, 365 and a quarter. So 365,250 days comprise a thousand years. But with the Lord, each day is like a thousand years. So now you've got to multiply the 365,250 by a thousand to discover that the millennium will actually last 365 million and 200,000 literal years. Now that's one of the 20 explanations that I've heard of the millennium. But here's another. A thousand years is with the Lord like a single day. So the whole millennium is 24 hours long. Because a thousand years is as a day. This is what happens when you try to take prophetic statements that are written in um, poetic and symbolic form and try to take them too literally. I'm a great fan of taking the Bible literally, and it's my main basis for doing Bible study, but there's a limit to how literally you can take some things when they're written in a poetic form like this. And when the Bible says that a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years, there's no way you can run the math on that. What he's really trying to say is, God doesn't think about time the way we think about time. God has a different way of looking at time than we do. Time is very important to us. That's why we keep checking our watch to see how many minutes it is till the sermon's over. No, don't worry. I keep doing it too. God doesn't do that. He waits for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years to fulfill a promise that he's made. During all that time, people are saying, when's God going to get around to fulfilling his promise? And then all of a sudden, one day when nobody's looking, bang, the promise is fulfilled, it's all over and done. And people stand back and go, whoa, he did it. Isn't that what happened with Jesus' first coming? Didn't he say to Eve in the Garden of Eden, your seed is going to crush the seed of the serpent? And Eve, Eve runs right out to have a couple of babies, hoping that one of them will be the Messiah. At least that's, that's my interpretation of Cain and Abel. And all along the way, he told Abraham, he told Moses, he told David, descendant of yours is going to rule the world. And for thousands of years, it seemed like nothing happened. And then all of a sudden, one night in Bethlehem, Jesus was born. Angels appeared, told the shepherds, today, see, it's been thousands of years, but today he's been born. And the whole world changed. That's what the second coming is going to be like, too. Things go along for a couple thousand years since the promise was made that he would come again. Really, in a sense, it's been the whole 6,000 years because that original promise wasn't fully fulfilled the first time around and needs the second coming to finish fulfilling it. So 6,000 years in predicting that Jesus is going to come. And here it is, February 3rd, 2008. And he might come today. And just like that, everything will be different. No, there's no difference uh, between a thousand years and a 
single day. To him, the two are the same. The Lord is not slow to do what he has promised, as some think. Now, people think that. People think the Lord is slow to do what he's promised because of this business about hundreds and thousands of years. People think that's slowness on the Lord's part, but it's not. Instead, Peter says, what it is, he is patient with you because he does not want anyone to be destroyed but wants all to turn away from their sins. And so every day that goes by that Jesus doesn't come again, the reason for it is God is waiting for somebody to repent. And and somebody in the world somewhere is right on the verge of making that decision just about every day. And God says, I don't want to mess it up. (laughs) Wait till they make that decision. So he's being patient. But, Verse 10 says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, I don't know if you've ever had your home broken into, if you've ever been robbed. I have. My home twice and my church twice, back when I had a church. I mean, that I pastored. And so I know a little tiny bit about thieves, robbers. And one of the few things that I know about them is... They do not send you a note the day before to say, you can expect me tomorrow at 3 o'clock a.m. The day of the Lord will come as a thief means it will come without warning. So you, you can turn on the TV, the radio, you can pick up magazines, you can read all kinds of prophetic teachers and preachers who will explain to you all the signs of the times that are leading up to the second coming of Christ. And they will talk for hours about how this event or that event in the news is evidence that Jesus is coming very soon. And when I hear those kind of messages, all I can say is, I can just picture that robber writing me that note that he's going to come at 3 o'clock tomorrow morning. (laughs) No! He comes without signs and without warnings. He just all of a sudden comes when you least expect him. The day of the Lord will come like that, Peter says in verse 10. On that day, the heavens will disappear with a shrill noise. The heavenly bodies will burn up and be destroyed. And the earth with everything in it will vanish. And yet he's still not talking about the non-existence of the planet. He's talking about the surface and the things that we can see. Going to be destroyed by fire, just like it was the previous time, destroyed by water, the flood. This is going to be a flood of fire, and it's going to do to the planet what the flood of water did, only just a different kind of flood. Now we get to the important part. (laughs) The part that Mary told me was important. She wanted to change the message. She didn't want to call it Peter's parting prophecies. She wanted to call it Peter's parting practical prods. And she was right, really. All of this prophetic interpretation and prophetic speculation and interest in prophecy, and hey, I'm a big promoter of that, some of you know. But it's all useless if all it is is an intellectual exercise to make us think about history and and the future and get ideas in our heads. 
This is the important part, verse 11. Since all these things, the heavens, the earth, all things, anything that's a thing, all these things will be destroyed in this way. Well, here's an interesting question. Since all these things will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people should you be? Look around you. Everything you see. Someday it's not going to be there anymore. What matters in a world like that? The whole world's coming to an end anyway. What matters? Does it matter what kind of a house you lived in? Does it matter what kind of car you drove? Does it matter what games you played or watched other people play? Does it matter what books you've read or or what ideas you've thought about? What matters if the whole world's going to evaporate someday? It could be a very discouraging thought if you just think about it like that. The whole world's going to be gone. So what difference does anything make? And indeed, that's precisely the answer that's given by the unbelievers when they hear a message like that. And I know I was an unbeliever. I was an atheist. And my answer was, if the whole world's going to be destroyed, then the only thing that matters is have all the fun you can while you can. Live, eat, drink, be merry, carry on, do whatever you want to do, because one of these days, there'll be nothing. So what difference does it make? Peter asks, since all these things will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people should you be? And then he gives the answer. Your lives should be holy and dedicated to God. Because when everything else doesn't exist anymore, guess who will still exist? God. And those who have dedicated their lives to him. As you wait for the day of God and do your best to make it come soon, some of us would rather do our best to make it not come, but Peter says, do your best to make it come soon, the day when the heavens will burn up and be destroyed and the heavenly bodies will be melted by the heat. This is not something to be afraid of. For Christians, this is something to look forward to. Even back in the old world there, when Noah was building the ark, he's preaching to the people, you need to repent. That's all mentioned in Second Peter chapter 2. We didn't get to that part today. Was Noah afraid? It does say that holy fear moved him <laughs> to the construction of the ark. He said, I don't want to drown. Fear moved him. But once having been moved and he was busy constructing that ark, he was looking forward to the day when he and all those animals would get to ride on top of the waves and survive when the rest of the world was wiped out. We should be looking forward to the day when we'll be floating a few miles above that fire and survive when the rest of the world is wiped out. We wait for, verse 13, now, and some, some translations say looking for, Neither of those, I think, fully conveys the idea. Waiting for it means like, okay, we're just kind of marking time. Sooner or later, it's going to happen. Wait for. 
look for, you know, we're curious, we're interested, we keep an eye out for it. But really what Peter is saying, we eagerly expect and anticipate and look forward to what God has promised. New heavens and a new earth. So there was the world that was destroyed by flood. The world that is preserved by God going to be destroyed by fire. And the world that is to come after that. And that's where our focus is. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what we're waiting for with eager and hopeful expectation. The new heavens and the new earth where righteousness will be at home. Where everything will be the way it ought to be. Where it be the way it should be. In the world that we live in now, so many things are not the way they should be. There's all kinds of pain and suffering and trouble. People do mean things to each other. Bad things happen, even to good people, according to Harold Kushner. But uh, we're looking forward to a very differently structured world where only good things will happen. And you know that one of the greatest parts of that is that there's only three worlds, not four. See, there's the world that was, the world that is, and the world that is to come. And the first world was destroyed by a flood, and the second world will be destroyed by a fire, but that third world won't be destroyed. It'll go on forever. Always, as long as God exists, and he'll exist forever and always. And in that world will live the people whose lives are holy and dedicated to God. Righteousness will be at home there. That says to me a couple of things. It says to me that if you're righteous, you probably don't feel very at home here because this is not a world where righteousness is at home. And the other thing it says to me is that if you're not righteous, if you're wicked, then you won't feel very at home in that world. (laughs) Righteousness will be at home. And so, my friends, as you wait for that day, do your best to be pure and faultless in God's sight. You accomplish that not by hard striving and working, but by continuing to trust and believe in him. And to be at peace with him. Look on our Lord's patience that he referenced earlier, as the opportunity he is giving you to be saved. He's giving you a chance to be saved, just like he gives everybody else a chance to be saved. He's given him as many chances as he can give. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you using the wisdom that God gave him. This is what he says in all his letters when he writes on the subject, referencing Paul's letters. There are some difficult things in Paul's letters. Peter says, (laughs) I didn't say it, Peter said it. There are some difficult things in Paul's letters which ignorant and unstable people explain falsely, not surprising, as they do with the other passages of the scriptures. Yes, so they bring on their own destruction. And really, everyone, everyone who is destroyed brings on their own destruction. Nobody has anybody else to blame for the mess that they've made of their lives. People try to do it all the time. Oh, I I was abused as a child, or, oh, I grew up poor and I didn't have any advantages, or whatever. People have all kinds of excuses. 
But God is not looking for you to achieve anything in life, particularly not to achieve anything that's beyond your ability to achieve. He doesn't hold you responsible for what you couldn't do. He only holds you responsible for what you could do. And the very one thing that you could do, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done before, no matter what anybody's done to you or failed to do to you, the one thing you could do is put your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. You could do that. Anybody. Anybody could do that. And that's all he's expecting. So they bring on their own destruction because they refuse to trust in Christ. But you, my friends, assuming that you're not one of those who don't trust in Christ, you already know this. So be on your guard then, so that you will not be led away by the errors of lawless people and fall from your safe position. You're saved by faith. You want to stay saved by faith. It never becomes anything other than faith. But it's a matter of having that faith not just once, but from then on throughout your life. Don't want to be led astray by the errors of lawless people and fall from your safe position. On the contrary, what you want to do is continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You grow in the grace of Christ the more you put your trust and your faith in him. You grow in the knowledge of Christ the more you study his word and apply it in your lives. So grow in the grace and grow in the knowledge. And to him be the glory, now and forever. Amen. Peter's parting prophecies. I hope they've been a help and an inspiration to you this morning. Or else, I hope they've been a challenge to you, a prod, as Mary says, to get you to do what God wants you to do in your life.